So we are in the season of Lent, and Dale referred to my video if you haven't seen it. So you all asked me last Sunday if I were giving up coffee, right? And I said very emphatically, no. And I, did, I felt emphatic when I said it. <laughs> no, I'm not giving that up. Tuesday morning about 4 a.m., I, the Lord awakens me and just begins to whisper to me. <laughs> I'm not crying because I feel bad about it. I'm crying out of love. <laughs> he just began to whisper like, will you just give this up out of love for me? <laughs> just as a, a love thing, you know. I'm <laughs> like, well, yes, Lord. <laughs> and so it has been a great joy. I'm in day like, I don't know, that was Tuesday. How many days? Five days, six days. I'm in six days of no caffeine. And I'll just say that if you ever want to reduce caffeine, cold turkey is not the way to go. I can't remember when I last have not had caffeine in my body. And I went cold turkey, man. And it was a rough week. <laughs> you don't know how much things can get a grip on you. And so I, I've been, I, I finally feel good. I finally feel good, praise the Lord. <laughs> now I'm kind of looking forward to Easter. <laughs> but do you know what? There, this is the point of Lent. It, it, it's been such a joy and excitement in doing it because it's this love thing with the Lord. Right? And I know I've been so blessed by so many of you that have been giving things up for Lent and or engaging. In fact, Darren and I were just at our chiropractor last Friday in Galesburg, and he is he took one of our Lent reading programs and for the first time has been reading and engaging with the word daily, and it has just transformed him. Some of you giving up things like stubbornness. I was so blessed by Dale's text. Some of you giving up soda, meat. Listen, there's something powerful when we lay things aside to draw near to the Lord. And, and it's not a, a religious thing, but as you draw near, as you lay things aside to just say, Lord, I'm, I'm coming after you. It's such an act of worship is what it is. And so with this Lent season, um, you know, some of it's, it is a season of restriction. The interesting thing, Darren asked me last week, he said, well, what does the word Lent actually mean? I'm like, well, I don't know. They never told us that in parochial school. And so I had to look it up, of course. And, and do you know, it, it comes from an old English word and it means the spring season. The spring season. And so I, I posted this, you can find it on Facebook, but theologian N.T. Wright, he wrote this, Lent is a season for discipline, for confession, for honesty. Not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good things he now has in store. And so Lent is really that kind of spring cleaning spiritually to make room for the coming season of spring. How many of you at the beginning of spring, you go outside? I was, I've been even looking at it, the 
the leaves that are cluttering everywhere, the debris that is everywhere. What do we do? We go in and we clean all of that out to make room and welcome spring, don't we? And so that's all Lent is. It's in making room for what he's going to bring to us in the next season. Praise the Lord. And so today we're going to talk about an area that sometimes needs cleaning out of our lives. And that is pride. Today we're going to be talking about humility and and we're going to be taking a few moments to look at the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a wild man. He had a purpose that no other none other had. And so we're going to take a few minutes and just do a little bit of character development for you in case you don't know much about the life of John the Baptist. And so we're going to take a look over in John chapter 3, if you want to turn over there. If you, the, the section between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? We had Malachi being the last prophet of the Old Testament. And then there's a period of about 400 years before we have this next prophet on, on the scene, who is John the Baptist, and so there's these 400, there's a lot happening in the world in those 400 years. But as far as this kind of prophetic voice, you don't see, we don't, we don't read that. And so it's significant that after these 400 years, who comes on the scene but this prophet, John the Baptist? And, and he's a prophet like no, none other. And so... Um, the text that we're going to be reading, and I'm going to read that first, and then we're just going to go back and do some um, Bible investigation on John's life. So starting in verse 27 of John chapter 3, John says, a, a man, let me make sure I'm in the right place. Actually go up. After these things, in verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was so much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. And then, as usual, there arises dispute among the disciples and the Jews about purification. They come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. And all are coming to him. It's like interdenominational jealousies happening here. There's nothing new under the sun. And even in Jesus's day, it was a thing. And so John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That's an important verse. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He is the forerunner. <laughs> he is the forerunner. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. See, it's not John because John doesn't have the bride, the bride being Israel. 
Jesus has the bride, that makes him the bridegroom, right? And so the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. See, one of the responsibilities of a bridegroom is to prepare the chamber for after the wedding, for the consummation. And so the bridegroom would prepare it, and then he would guard the chamber. And no one is allowed in except the bridegroom. And he hears the voice of the bridegroom coming, and he rejoices. This is the role of John the Baptist. He says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the, I'm just, I'm the, the friend of the bride. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus has come. He's been preaching, repent, repent, the kingdom. It's, it's coming, it's near. And now he's saying, my joy is fulfilled. Jesus has come. And here's our key. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. Everybody say that. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. And so today, this is our key. He must increase. I must decrease. And so let's take a few moments just to look quickly at, I want you to just have an understanding of John the Baptist. In, in Luke chapter 1, you will find that he's born to aged, barren parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias. And, and Zacharias was a priest, and he's doing his priestly duties, burning incense before the Lord, when who should appear? Gabriel. They sent the big one in. Gabriel appears before him, and he says this to him, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice. At, he's talking about John. He's gonna, you're going to have a child at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and drink neither wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. And do you remember what happened when he was in Elizabeth's womb and Mary came to visit Elizabeth, right? And she was pregnant with Jesus and she draws near. And, and, and John in Elizabeth's womb, it, he knows the nearness. The Savior's in this other womb, but he knows and he leaps within her. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's a sign of revival right there. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Listen, this is so important because Jesus will come again and we have to be a people ready and prepared for his coming and this was the role of John the Baptist from before he was born. He had a purpose destined by God. In Matthew chapter, chapter 3, you can see him later in life. 
And it says in verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Listen, even before, like all the way back in Isaiah, he was prophesied about. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Man, he could have won every season of alone. Living on honey and locust. He was, he was not a, he was an out of the box person. Right? See, and I've said it before. Sometimes it takes out of the box people to do what God wants done. In Matthew 11, then Jesus says this about John the Baptist. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But then listen to this. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? We're new covenant. We've come into the new covenant. And now the least in the kingdom. And and some of you sit there thinking, I don't have much to offer the Lord. I don't have much to offer the body of Christ. I'm just a little person. Listen, you have, you're a child of the new covenant. And the least of the new covenant is greater than John the Baptist of whom known have been greater. That's the power of Jesus in you. And, and I, I say that while we're, we're talking about humility. Right? I'm not trying to puff you up into anything. I'm, I'm trying to show you the power of Christ within you. The least, the least one of you here, if we were to take a vote, like, like remember Gideon, Gideon said, wait a minute, I'm the lowest of the low. I'm in the least clan and I'm the least of that clan. And God said, oh man of valor, right? And so the least one in here is greater than John the Baptist. If you go back, we were just in John chapter 3. If you go back to John chapter 1, in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world, Jesus. And then there's this passage. If you go over to verse 19, it says, here's the testimony of John. This is his testimony When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is what they were doing. The Jews were constantly looking for who might be the Christ. And they thought John might be it. No, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Interesting here is that he never gives his name. 
They say, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's quoting Isaiah, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, he's quoting the prophecy about himself. That's not pride. That is humility in knowing who you are and what God is doing in you and through you. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And he said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And then in verse 29, the next day, I love this passage. The next day, Jesus John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm just imagining all of the ministry John has been doing to prepare the way for him to be in this moment now of declaration. There he is. I've been saying the kingdom is near. I've been saying repent for the kingdom of, is coming. And, and there he is. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me, right? He created the world. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So in this moment, the fulfillment of all of John's ministry, preparing the way for the lamb to be revealed to Israel. And so now this is a place where John begins to decrease, that Jesus might increase. And so must become almost a slogan or a banner over our lives in every area. The kingdom of God isn't like this kingdom, right? You hear me say it often. It's an upside down kingdom. To become great, you become low. Pride gets you absolutely nowhere in the kingdom. We must decrease you want more of God in your life, you must decrease that he might increase. And so we're going to quickly walk through how, how do I decrease and how does, what does humility, what does it produce in my life? Okay, so we're going to quickly walk through these. The first thing here, this is the, the key to all the others is that humility gives grace. Humility gives grace. Okay. So let's look at first Peter chapter five and we're going to start in verse one. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. I love our elders because they 
even though they might like to retire, they just keep saying yes to serving this body. <laughs> they are faithful in that and overseeing you all. And they pray for you. They pray for you. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Listen, this is it. What the world tries to do is to, is to bring disunity amongst the generations. And this word elder here is both a positional office in the church, but, and it can be an age thing. It can also be a spiritual age thing. Somebody who's been a, a follower of Christ for a long time can be an elder to you, right? And so um, there, it, the, the, the truth is, is that the, the world would seek to separate generations, but within the body of Christ, we're, there is no separation because it is the body of Christ. It's one body and we all coexist in it. And, and there are things that I, as you age, you walk through seasons that you walk through. And, and I have been so blessed from the time of being a teenager to have elders in my life that have shaped me, that have poured into me, that have given me a strong foundation that without them, I wouldn't have. And so we need, as the younger generation, to draw from what the older generation has, the strength that they have and can impart to you. You would do well to just, like, invite Gary and Kathy to lunch and say, Gary and Kathy, talk to us about marriage. How do you make it that long? Will you just, will you just share with us? <laughs> that was Dale, not Gary and Kathy. <laughs> there is something, though, for the younger ones to position themselves. This is humility. We're talking about humility. There is something about submitting to those that have this experience and have walked through and garnered wisdom and strength. It can be a great, great source for you. Then it goes on, though, and it says, um, am I my, sure I'm on the right? Thank you. Likewise, you, okay, you younger people submit to elders. And then it goes on to say, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And so, see, the younger ones should be able to trust submitting to the elders because the elders are actually also submitting to you as the body of Christ and are clothing themselves with humility so that it's not a power trip. It's a, I just want to impart to you. And this kind of co-submission, it takes humility to do this. To submit to one another requires it. And you can try to do it on your own, and you, you may get far, but you'll go a lot farther. 
if you will do what the word says and submit one to another. Be clothed in humility for God resists the proud. And and here's our point, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you clothe yourself in humility, you fling open the doors of your life for grace to be poured down. The favor of the Lord, that is grace. The ability to to walk successfully in him, that is his grace. And, And so pride keeps you from accessing the grace that you need. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Not self-exaltation, that he, his grace, would exalt you in due time. Due time. Do you hear that? Doesn't mean, oh, I've submitted today, so I want it today. (laughs) In due time. There's a proving that takes place. And in due time... When you're that, which we were saying today, refiner's fire, right? Try me, try me, because we need the trying to discover where the pride is at. And so in due time, he will exalt you, casting all your care for he cares for you. There's an interesting guy in the Old Testament that I want us to take a look at in Second Chronicles chapter 26. Anybody heard of King Uzziah? King Uzziah uh, was actually 16 years old when he became king. How would you like that, Derek? Oh, Derek left. Well, he can't be king. He left. King Uzziah was 16. And in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 3, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 52 years. There were a lot of really bad kings, right? Not a lot of them would seek the Lord and and do the Lord's way, but King Uzziah did. In verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And listen to this. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. As long as he sought the Lord. Now, in verse 15, you know, he did some amazing things while he was king. You can read it in the whole chapter. But just a couple of things. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide. Why? He was greatly helped by the Lord. He was able to do all of this because he was greatly helped until, until, He became powerful. And then all was well, but after Uzziah became powerful, he goes the way of many men. 
and his pride led to his downfall. In verse 16, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He was greatly helped. He had grace until pride came in. Pride will keep us from accessing grace. I, I thought this would be interesting because Isaiah was kind of a inventor, kind of a person. George Wakefield, the famous preacher, he tells the story um, of the famous inventor, Samuel Morse, the Morse code, right? The telegraph, who was once asked if he ever encountered situations where he didn't know what to do in inventing. Morse responded more than once, and whenever I could not see my way clearly, I knelt down and prayed to God for light and understanding. He received many honors from his invention of the telegraph, but felt undeserving. I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone. And he was pleased to reveal it to me. Oh, I want, my, I want the Lord to be pleased to reveal things to me, right? Humility is at the door for that. The humili humility opens that ability to receive from the Lord. I, I was listening to a sermon and I heard somebody say it this way. Like a, a fish, a fish swimming up the stream, just going with the river, flowing. And then all of a sudden, it hits a dam. And it's like, what? I can't go anymore. That's like pride. You're just flowing in the grace of the Lord. And he's helping you as he helped King Uzziah. And then you hit, what? I hit a dam. What is going on? I can't seem to be going anywhere. It might be a good time to kind of do some self-examination because this is what pride will do. It will be a, you hitting that wall. It'll cut off that beautiful flow that you were in, in the river of his grace. So the grace, the access to grace that comes through humility it opens the door then for the next two points and we'll move through these quickly and then conclude. Number two, humility walks independence. Independence. So in Deuteronomy chapter eight, if you want to go back all the way there to the beginning of the book. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments and statutes, lest when you have eaten and are full and have beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and flock multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget 
the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you in the wilderness through the fiery serpents and scorpions and the thirsty land where there was no water and brought you water out of a rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, why that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. They cease to depend upon the Lord. They are now depending on themselves. And it says in verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if by any means you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day, you shall surely perish. Listen, this is the, this is the struggle, is that the Lord empowers us and lifts us up, and we so easily fall into thinking that we've accomplished this, and we lose that dependence upon his grace that we gained through humility. This is why one of my life verses, I think I had to have a book of them. I say that all the time, but I do love in Matthew chapter five, we have the Beatitudes and they're all good. But the first Beatitude I've tried to live by Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Your rational soul, that is your spirit. Here, here's what this poverty in this, in this verse means. Destitute of wealth, influence, position, and honor. I try to live in this verse of acknowledging that there is no wealth that is mine that originates with me. I have to remain in the acknowledgement of my poverty of soul so that the richness of him can fill it. And it's just so easy. I try to live in this because it is so easy. And, and especially like, like my fav- one of my favorite sections in the bookstore would be the self-help section. I love a good self-help book. I, I-, I want to, th- that's my personality. And so it can be very easy to fall into that thinking of, oh, look at what I've done. No, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I have to, I have to sit in this beatitude. I have to live in this beatitude because I don't want to end up like we just read where they had beautiful homes, everything was great, and they forgot where it came from. Dependence on his grace. That is, that's walking in humility. The knowledge that every good and perfect gift, where does it come from? It comes from above. 
Just as John the Baptist said, we only have anything because it comes from above. Because we have received it. And so, so humility opens the door for grace and humility teaches us to depend on that grace. And then number three, humility, and this is why we need grace, humility overcomes worldliness. Humility overcomes worldliness. In James chapter four, and you know, worldliness isn't, we, we think of it always in just the negative, but I mean, worldliness is just anything temporal of this world, right? It's not even necessarily bad things, but they're temporal things. And if we are consumed by them, then we are living in that spirit of worldliness. And so the call for us is to, when we become Christ followers, is to come out from the world, right? And so in, in James chapter four, there's a, and there's a lot of like stuff going on there at the beginning of the passage. Where do wars and fights come from among you, right? There's been a lot of that going on. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Why? Because the lust of the flesh is never satisfied. You will always want more and more and more and more. It never is satisfied. That's why it has to be crucified. Uh, You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures worldliness, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is the very thing we want to, we're we're changing our affections for the friendship with the world, for friendship with God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. We have a jealous God that we serve. And he's not fond of our friendships with the world. He sees it and he longs for you to to transfer that affection onto him. And then here in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, again, we see this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the thing that breaks the hold of this world in us. It's that he gives the grace to overcome and to separate from the world. You have heart longing for the things of this world, for old friendships, for old habits. The way through that is to humble yourself and his grace comes and enables you to do it. And so the grace that he gives through humility is the grace that we need to be dependent on him and to overcome worldliness. In Titus 2, it says, for the grace of God has appeared 
that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Wow. What is it that does that? The grace of God, it gives you the ability to say no to the lure of this world, to the sirens calling out to you of this world. His grace gives you the ability to say no. And, and what is it that it says that will be the block? Pride. Pride. And so I'm going to ask if the team will come forward. In this Lenten season, it is the season, just a moment, Gary, I'll call you up. It is a season for revisiting humility, examination of pride in our lives. I don't know about you, but in Ephesians, it says that he has richly poured out grace to us. He, he abounds grace toward us. But that only will, we can only receive that if we have crucified the pride, if we're walking in humility. And I love that in Colossians, it tells, it commands us to clothe yourself in humility. What that says to me is that I have a choice. I can choose the way of humility. I can choose the path of humility in my life. I can choose to be a person of humility. If it is a command given, then his grace enables it. And I don't know about you, but I need all the grace I can access because I want to finish this race strong before the appearance of Christ Jesus, right? When you walk in humility, what the world thinks of you ceases to matter. It just doesn't matter. There's only one thing that matters, what Jesus thinks about me. There's only going to be one that I appeared before. And I'm really, really looking for him to say, well done. I just really want him to look at me and say, well done. So what the world thinks really just doesn't matter anymore. There's only one opinion. And so I must decrease that the one who really matters might increase in my life. And I loved this testimony of William Carey. You know William Carey? He was considered the, he's considered the father of modern missions, missionary in India. He spent his early years as a cobbler. He became one of the greatest linguists of this of the church has ever known. Listen, it is reported that he has translated parts of the Bible into as many as 24 Indian languages. He didn't have Babel. He didn't have apps to help us with our language. 
24 languages. When he first went to India, there were a lot of people that did, didn't really like him and viewed him with contempt. And at a dinner party, a distinguished guest was trying to humiliate him. And so he says in, in front of everybody in a loud voice, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. And Carey responded humbly, know your lordship, not as a shoemaker, only a cobbler. I didn't make shoes, I fixed shoes. What is that? That's humility. He's not spouting off all of the languages he's now translated the Bible into. He's just laying claim to his humbleness. And so this morning, as we are going to come around the table, we're going to conclude around the table of the Lord. And I loved this. I was thinking of this quote, even as our kids were back there worshiping today. J.C. Ryle says this, the child who knows the story of the cross possesses a key to religious knowledge which patriarchs and prophets never enjoyed. (laughs) A child with the knowledge of the cross has keys that many religious leaders do not have. This humility. He made it so that a child could understand it. Unless you become like a child, right? Unless you become like a child, unless you humble yourself. And so this morning, as we come to the table in this season of Lent, the words of Jesus as he says, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. I, you know, I, in fact, I'm seeing these two pieces of litter right here. This is just a simple thing, but it has been something I've applied in my life to, to try to walk in humility. But I, like even I was at our district, I saw him working yesterday and some a student had dropped a candy wrapper and I bent over to pick it. I, I, I'll never just walk over garbage. I, I bend down to pick it up. And that might sound silly to you, but for me, it is a, it's like a trigger moment of, of bringing me back to humility. Whoever desires to become great, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slaves. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If our rabbi, if our our teacher went the way of humility, how much greater... Do his followers go the way of humility? And so this morning, the elders are going to come, and I, I didn't. I want you to come and receive from them. I want you to move from your seat because for me, humility requires an is an action thing. I have to clothe myself in humility. I have to do acts of humility. 
And so I want us to move toward the communion table this morning as a confession of humility around the table of the Lord. And as we do that, I'm just going to ask if the team will just lead us in a moment of worship as you get your communion and go back to your seat. Just examine your heart and ask, even as we sing it today, I'm tr- I want to be tried by fire, Lord. I don't want any pride, any seeds of pride. Pride is, it, it's like that yeast. You know, the Bible compares sin to yeast, just a few grains, and it can explode. And so, Lord, what we're asking is that there not be even a seed of pride in our hearts. And so if the elders were going to come, I'm going to ask one on each side here. And so Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take it and eat it. And so in a moment, you're going to come and you're going to receive your bread. And when you come back to your seat, I want you just for a moment just to give thanks for his cleansing as you confess any areas of pride. Just do it with a heart of thankfulness that he has freed you. And this cup that is his blood, it's going to cleanse you as you confess areas of pride. His blood will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. And so let's just, just as you feel ready, communion is open to anyone. As long as you have accepted Christ as your Savior, we welcome you to partake of the communion table with us. But let's go ahead and get our communion and head back to your seat, and then we will take it together. So hold on to it once you have it.